It sounds like a cliche to say this, but the fact of the matter is, the greatest subject we can think on and meditate on and contemplate is the subject of God himself. No thought is more profound and no thought is more immense. Thinking on God gives bearing and direction and focus to our lives. So on this first Sunday of the new year, I want us to focus our thoughts and our attention on God. My prayer is that this will give us direction and focus for the entire year ahead of us. You see, we can never think too much about God, but we can certainly think of Him too little. After all, there is no subject in this universe that is more important than the subject of God Himself. Knowing God, rightly knowing God, is determinative for life after death. In John 17, 3, Jesus, in His prayer to the Father, said, And this is eternal life. Now, now that should get our attention. Whenever the Bible talks about eternal life, since no person in his right mind would want eternal death, when the Bible talks about eternal life, it should get our attention. And when Jesus prays to the Father and says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life results from knowing God. And nothing is more important than that. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing even comes close to comparing with the value of knowing God and having His eternal life pulsing through your soul because those who don't know God will be eternally judged. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, When the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth in judgment, He will come, here's the exact quote of the verse, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this issue of rightly knowing God is of utmost importance because it is determinative for life after death. But that's not all. Rightly knowing God not only has ramifications for the life to come, it also has tremendous ramifications for life here and now. Oh, how I wish, I wish, I wish people would understand this. Rightly knowing God, thinking properly about God is foundational to right living. Right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. So many of the problems people have in life stem from a wrong perspective about God because, hear this, what you believe about God fleshes out in your life. Not what you say you believe about God, but what you really believe about God. Our knowledge of God is the key to our lives, beloved. Rightly knowing God is the key to emotional, mental, intellectual, and spiritual well-being. For that reason, Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 both say the fool 
has said in his heart, there is no God. I've told you the story in the past of the man, an atheist, who used to go to the little local country church by which he lived, and he went for the express purpose of trying to fluster the pastor and and make fun of the pastor. He would go and sit in the service and make faces and all of these things and and all of these attempts to try to frustrate the pastor as he would get up to share the Word of God. Well, on this particular one Sunday, he wrote a little note, and he folded it and handed it to the usher, one of the ushers, and he said, please deliver this to the pastor right before he gets up to speak. The usher, not knowing what the note said, complied. He took the note, handed it to the pastor, and the pastor opened it, and inside was one word, all capital letters, FOOL. The pastor got up and said, Men and women, I've just had an amazing thing happen to me. Through the years, I have received many notes or letters that were unsigned. But for the first time in my life, I just received a note that was signed but had no message. (laughs) Quick thinking. God's definition of a fool is someone who doesn't believe there is a God or someone who lives life as if there is no God. That is God's definition of a fool. Let me show you this in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. The third book of the New Testament, the third Gospel record, chapter 12. Verse 16. This is our Lord speaking, giving one of His famous parables. And He says this in Luke 12, 16, Then Jesus spoke a parable To them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have prepared? Notice this story. It's a powerful, profound story. The man in this story, by Jesus' definition, was a smart businessman, successful. But God called him a fool because he lived his life as if there were no God. So again I say, God's definition of a fool is someone who does not believe there is a God or someone who lives life as if there is no God. And our world, as you know, is filled with people like this, some of whom are very religious or philosophical about it. For example, there are atheists. An atheist is someone who denies that there is a God. An atheist is someone who says there is no God, categorically, defiantly, there is no God. An atheist is like a cactus sitting in the desert telling another cactus that there is no ocean. How does it know that? Think about this. To be able to say dogmatically there is no God, to be able to assert that would mean that you would have to have perfect and complete knowledge of everything possible or potential in this universe, and you would have had to have been everywhere in the universe to search out To support your claim, there is no God. 
But most people who are atheists are atheists because it's the most expedient way to deal with their sin and their guilt. A second form of man's foolishness is agnosticism. An agnostic is someone who says the existence and nature of God is not able to be known. An agnostic does not go to the extent of an atheist. An atheist just says there is no God. An agnostic says, well, we can't know. Maybe there's a God, maybe not, but the existence and nature of God is not able to be known. In effect, this is a softened form of atheism. The agnostic asserts that you can't know if there's a God. But please hear this. It's not because he can't believe. It's because he chooses not to believe. He doesn't want to believe there is a God. The evidence is there. The the evidence is overwhelming. If any man will be intellectually honest. A third form of man's foolishness is evolutionism. An evolutionist is someone who thinks God has never acted to manifest, reveal, or show himself. So the the evolutionist explains away creation by saying the universe came into existence by random chance or accident. You see, atheism, agnosticism, and evolutionism are all forms of willful unbelief. Romans 1.28 speaks of those who do not like to retain God in their knowledge. They don't want to think about God. They don't want to know about God. They don't want to believe. They don't want to face the facts. They don't want to look at the evidence. They are willfully ignorant. To illustrate this point, let me ask you a question. Let's say as you were leaving the building this day, If you were to walk out as you were leaving, and you go out on the sidewalk, and there you see a Lego house, you know, blue, yellow, red Lego blocks, and you see a Lego house that's constructed, what would you conclude? Would you assume that someone was driving by and threw a box of Legos out the window of the car, and when the box landed, it burst open, and all the Legos came together to form a house? Would anyone conclude that? Absolutely not. You would know that someone, a child or an adult, put that together, left it there, whatever, but you would know that someone put that together because design implies designer. Consider the fact that this universe is a billion times more complex than a little Lego house, and that shows you just how foolish evolution is. It's like looking at a piano and assuming that it came about when an elephant ran into a tree in which a man was sitting and playing the harp. And when all the dust settled, there was the piano, ivory strings and wood. Believing in evolution is like believing that a new house comes into being by having a pile of lumber, wires, and plastic delivered to a vacant lot, placed in a pile, then you light dynamite under the pile, and when the explosion settles, you will have a new house with everything in place, bedrooms upstairs, kitchen on the main level, two-car garage. That's foolishness. Utter foolishness. No wonder, no wonder Psalm 14, 1, 53, 1 say, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The evidence in creation is astoundingly overwhelming. It is utterly foolish to say there is no God. A fourth form of man's foolishness 
is pantheism. A pantheist is someone who believes that God is everything, or to say it the other way, everything is God. The rocks are God, the trees are God, everything is God. In essence, this is nothing more than a form of atheism, because if everything is God, then God isn't anything. Furthermore, this belief denies man's responsibility because in pantheism, everything and everyone acts of necessity. So, man is not really a free agent and accountable for his conduct. This belief also destroys the foundation of morals. Because in pantheism, sin is a necessary and unavoidable weakness, which means God himself is sinful. This belief also makes religion, personal religion, impossible because there is no distinction between human and divine beings. So in essence, this view deifies man. That's pantheism. A fifth form of man's foolishness is polytheism. A polytheist is someone who believes in many gods, but he doesn't believe there is one true God. Without realizing it, Amazingly, a polytheist is a worshiper of demons, Scripture says. A sixth form of man's foolishness is deism. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world. So a deist doesn't usually deny creation. A deist believes God created the world, but then he backed off and he left man to work out his own destiny. In other words, it's sort of like a huge clock and God wound the clock tight, set it out in the universe and backed away and just let it unfold. In deism, God exerts no influence on men. God exerts no influence on the world he has created. God is not involved at all in this world. He did what he's going to do, made it, wound it up, put it in play, and then backed off just to see what's going to happen. That's deism. A seventh form of man's foolishness is what I call practical atheism. A practical atheist is someone who might even believe there is a God. It's not someone who would flatly deny the existence of God like an atheist. A practical atheist may believe there is a God, but he lives his life as if there were no God. Probably most people in our culture, at least, fall into this category. They don't deny the existence of God. There aren't a huge percentage of atheists in our country. There's a significant amount, but not huge in comparison to the total population. They don't deny the existence of God, but they just don't care. They live life as if there were no God. They want to do what they want to do, so they suppress any fundamental instincts about the reality of God. And let me tell you something, this is really easy to do today with all the alcohol and drugs and entertainment that's available just to keep your mind off God. So all of these views are forms of man's foolishness in refusing to believe in the one true God who is both imminent and transcendent. Now, what do we mean by the terms imminent and transcendent? When we say God is imminent, that means he is involved in his creation, in contrast to a deistic view. God is imminent. He is involved. When we say God is transcendent, 
That means he is separate from or distinct from his creation in contrast to pantheism, which basically says he is his creation. So God is both imminent and transcendent. And that is the way the Bible presents the one true God. So who is God? Who is he? In summary, we could say this. He is creator of the world and everything in it. He is king and lord of his creation and of this universe. He is the sovereign one. He is the life giver, the source of everything. He is the governor or controller of human history. He is the revealer. He does what he does so he might reveal himself to be who he really is. That's who God is. But this morning, what I want us to focus on is a different question. Not who is God, or not even the question, what is God like? But I want us this morning to focus on a more fundamental question. And it is this question. What is God? What kind of being is he? To answer that question, we need to consider the very essence of God. Now, before we jump into the subject, let me explain the difference between the essence of God and the attributes of God. Most Christians are somewhat familiar with the attributes of God. In fact, many Christians have, at one time or another in their lives, done a study on the attributes of God. Those attributes, uh, the attributes of God are things like His love, His mercy, His holiness, His grace, His kindness, His justice— All of those fall under the category of his attributes. That helps us answer the question, what is God like? But before we even begin answering that question, I want us to answer the question, what is God? What kind of being is he? What is his essence? What is he? Now, if we're going to try to probe this subject in just a brief time, I just want to give you a fair warning. You're going to have to put on your thinking caps because we're going to try to wrestle with what is God. I believe the Bible presents to us five aspects of the essence of God. What is He? Number one, God is spiritual. Now, when I say that, don't think of spiritual in contrast with carnal. That's often the way we think. And we use the term, and rightly so, we say you know, so-and-so is really a spiritual person, well, so-and-so is not spiritual. That's not how we're using the term. When we say God is spiritual, we mean he is a spirit being in contrast with a material being. God is immaterial. God is, or another term, God is incorporeal. Jesus said this plainly in John chapter 4. Turn over to the next gospel from Luke to John chapter 4. And we're going to look at one key text for each of these points. We could turn to many, but time will not allow us to turn to many. We're going to look at one key text for each of these five aspects of God's essence. God is spiritual. That is, he is a spirit being. This, of course, is the famous conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. And in the conversation, They began to talk about God, and in verse 24, Jesus made this statement, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, God is spirit. This woman thought, well, somehow you can can localize God. You can put him in a temple. You can capture him there. And Jesus said, no, no, 
No, you can't. God is spirit. According to Jesus' words in Luke 24, 39, a spirit being doesn't have flesh and bone. So God has no physical body. When the Bible speaks of God as having human parts, those are anthropomorphisms. That's a long word that simply means God is described in terms of a man to help us understand him and relate to him. For example, the Bible speaks of the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro, or the arm of the Lord that saves, but actually God doesn't have either. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have an arm. The ear of the Lord is open to the cry of the righteous. God doesn't have an ear. Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Now, we're not going to suggest from that that God has the body of a bird. He has wings. That's a way of saying something to help us understand or relate to God. So the Bible uses these anthropomorphisms to help us understand or relate to God. If the Bible used technical language to tell us how God does what he does, we wouldn't understand. In other words, God does see. He doesn't see with eyes, but the only way we know to see is with eyes. That's why the Bible says the eyes of the Lord. But if the Bible used technical language, if the Bible said God looks around the world with his guonk, we wouldn't understand. What is that? What does that mean? So the Bible describes God in terms we can understand. But God is a spirit being, and as such, he is invisible. That is what is so amazing about the incarnation, which we just celebrated. God the Son, whose divine essence is also spiritual, became a man to walk among men so he could display what God is like. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is a spirit. However, be careful, that doesn't mean that God is some kind of floating cosmic force. No, God is a person. He has the essence of personhood, self-consciousness, and self-determination. Personal pronouns are always used of him. God is a he, not an it. Personal titles are used to describe him, such as father, friend, counselor, shepherd, etc. Furthermore, he has the characteristics of personhood, intellect, emotions, will, or volition. He thinks, he acts, he feels, he speaks. So God is a person, but he's not a human being. He is a spirit being. God is spirit. That's one aspect of his essence. Number two, God is self-existent. This means that God has life in himself. Look at John chapter 5, the next chapter from where we are right now. John chapter 5, verse 26. John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son to have life in himself. God is self-existent, which means the basis of his existence is in himself. No other being can make such a claim. Human beings, spirit beings, God alone is self-existent. He exists by necessity of his very nature as God. This doesn't mean that God is his own cause. No. He did not cause himself to come into existence. He is the first cause himself uncaused. 
Think about that one for a while and it'll fry your brain. And we're only getting started. Number three, God is immense. That doesn't mean God is big. Now, we're not using these terms today in sort of the popular level, more technical. God is immense. It doesn't mean he's big. It means, here's the definition, he transcends all spatial limitations. Turn back into Hebrew scripture to 1 Kings chapter 8. First and Second Samuel you'll find, and then First Kings chapter 8. Verse 27. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? In other words, is, can you limit God to planet earth? Can you hold him here? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. This is in Solomon's great dedicatory prayer. So when we talk about the immensity of God, we are talking about his infinity in relation to space. God is present beyond the limits of space. If we could, if somehow we could draw a circle around the farthest limits of space, God would go infinitely beyond that. That's the immensity of God. His infinity in relation to space. But then there's another aspect to his essence, closely related but distinct. Number four, God is eternal. God is free from all succession of time. Look at Psalm 90. Keep turning to the right, past the book of Job, Psalm 90, verse 2. Here's a great statement about the eternality of God. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now here's the contrast with the previous point. The immensity of God is His infinity in relation to space. The eternality of God is His his infinity in relation to time. God has the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. He sees the past and the future as visibly as he does the present. He is without beginning. He is without end. He is the architect of time because he created time. Think about that. There was no such thing as time until God created it because he is eternal. And then number five, God is immutable. That means that God is unchanging and unchangeable. Turn over to the, near the end of the New Testament to the little epistle of James. Here is one statement, a great one, on the immutability of God. James chapter 1, verse 17 we often quote the first part of this verse because it's, so, it's such a tremendous statement, a great assertion of God. We say every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And that is a magnanimous statement. But look at the rest of it. With whom there is no variation, 
no change whatsoever, or even shadow of turning. That's that sort of a word picture. You know how when you're in the sun and you, you turn a little bit, you change, then that's reflected in your shadow. And James is saying there's absolutely no change with God, and in fact, his shadow never shifts or changes. God doesn't change. In fact, he cannot change. He is free from all increase or decrease. To say it another way, he can't become more or less. It is impossible for God to change because, please get this, change implies perfection. Change is either for better or for worse. Both are inconceivable for God, utterly impossible for God. He can't become better. He can't become worse. He can't change. God's immutability applies to his nature, his essence, his attributes, his will, his plan, his purposes, his promises. God is immutable. He doesn't change. He cannot change. However, this doesn't mean God is without movement. It doesn't mean God is immobile. God acts in various ways at various times according to his eternal plan, but some things come across to us as a change of plans. But in reality, God has pre-planned all things, and once this was fixed, it will not change. Now, ready for this? Though changes are built in and planned for. The very fact that God knows all things makes them certain. If the future isn't certain, then God can't know all things, and therefore God ceases to be God. If your head isn't spinning already, then try this one on. The fact that God knows all things makes them certain, but not necessary. In other words, God is not responsible for our sin, mankind's sin. We are. God knows all things, and that makes them certain, but not necessary. And he has pre-planned all things, and it will not change, though changes are built in and planned for. Some of you might be thinking about passages that say God changed his mind, or God was sorry, or God, even one version, one translation says back in Genesis, God repented. God repented that he had made man. What do those passages mean? The technical term is this. Those are anthropopathisms, which means God is, described, is describing himself as having human reactions. But in reality, God never changes his mind. God never repents. He's never surprised by anything. He never sits up in heaven and says, Oh, no, I never saw this coming. Now what do I do? I've got to change direction here. I need to change course. Listen, beloved, if God ever did something he had to repent of, he wouldn't be God. And that's the best I can do at explaining it, which I know is, is pretty woeful. As we contemplate the essence of God, his spirituality, his self-existence, his immensity, his eternality, and his immutability. It makes us realize that we cannot fully explain, understand, or comprehend God. We cannot totally explain, understand, or comprehend God. And it's a good thing we can't, because if we could, then either God wouldn't be God, or some of us would be God, and then we'd all be in trouble. But realizing the greatness of God 
the vastness of God ought to cause us, ought to challenge us, ought to motivate us to make knowing God our number one pursuit in life. Beloved, we need to know God. Not just know Him for eternal life. We need to know God. And if we don't know Him, then maybe even accidentally or inadvertently we can, we can be guilty of idolatry. When we think of idolatry, when you hear that term, when we use that term, we usually think of a group of people bowing down to a statue somewhere in the Far East in a pagan temple where incense is being burned. But that's only one form of idolatry. Idolatry is also making the true God into something He is not. For example, a lot of Christians do not realize, because they don't read the text closely, that when the children of Israel made the golden calf, they were not seeking another God. They weren't, trying, they weren't attempting to invent a new God. No. The text is clear. They were seeking to make an image of the true God, not a false one. But they sought to make the true God into something He isn't. And that's idolatry. There's another form of idolatry that I believe that we are often guilty of in the 21st century, and that is thinking thoughts about God that aren't true of Him, that aren't accurate of Him, embracing thoughts of God, concepts of God, perspectives of God that aren't true of Him. I've talked with many people through the years who have fashioned, formed an image of God in their minds that is not the picture presented in the, in the Word of God. It's a completely different picture of God. And sometimes people do this to justify their actions, to rationalize their actions. They, they, there's this conflict in their soul, in their heart, in their mind, between the way they want to live and the view of God that they have, so they change their view of God. For example, I, I've had people tell me more than once, I've had people tell me that God was leading them to divorce their spouse without any biblical grounds. And I always say the same thing. Which God? Not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Scripture. So it's possible, please hear this, it's possible for us as Christians to embrace a view of God that is idolatrous. We can embrace a view of God that allows us to be comfortable with our sin, our wrong decisions, our wrong choices. Beloved, that's idolatry too. It's just as much idolatry as bowing down to an image, offering incense to an image. It's idolatry. Let me mention another one. Another way we commit idolatry is when, now be careful about this one, it's when we overemphasize one attribute of God at the expense of another. For example, some people, some Christians, only want to recognize the love of God but they don't want to hear anything about His holiness, His righteousness, His justice. Some Christians have recognized this te tendency within Christianity, in Christianity, and so they go overboard the other way. And they emphasize, to the exclusion of God's love, they emphasize the justice of God, the righteousness of God, at the expense of His love. Usually when Christians do that, you can see it. You can see it in their lives because 
They have very little compassion for people because of their view of God. As I said way back at the beginning, our view of God fleshes out in life. Not what we say we believe about God, what we really believe about God. Entertaining thoughts about God that are untrue is idolatry. Embracing perspectives of God that are not true is idolatry. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God said to the wicked, this is such a a profound statement, he said this, you thought that I was just like you. Think about that statement. God saying to someone, you thought, you assumed that I was like you. I'm not like you. I'm altogether different. And that's our tendency, though, to think God is just like us. As someone has well said, you know, God created man in his own image, and man tries to return the favor and tries to create God in our image. Like, well, this is, this is who God is. Beloved, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. When we make God into our own image, when we fashion God into our likeness, then we're guilty of idolatry. So that in and of itself ought to cause us to make knowing God and knowing Christ our life's number one pursuit. This was the pursuit the Apostle Paul expressed in Philippians chapter 3, and I want us to turn there as we close this morning. Turn over back to the left from James to Philippians chapter 3. And notice this driving passion that Paul expresses here in Philippians 3. I can think of no greater passage for us heading into this new year than what Paul expresses here in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 10, expressing his drive, his passion, that I may know him. You know what's interesting about this? Paul has just said two or three verses earlier, that he used to be holding on to his own righteousness, but when he came to know Christ, he let go of all of his own righteousness. So the point is, Paul knew Christ. He already knew him. And yet he says here in verse 10, you know what my ambition is? You know what my aim in life is? You know what my goal is? That I may know Christ. Which lets us know that just coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior isn't the end. It's the beginning. So Paul says, this is my passion that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Here's a great New Year's verse. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew Christ. In fact, Paul had known Christ for 30 years when he wrote these words. He knew Christ. But he says, this is my life's ambition. Oh, how I want to know him. There's so much more to him. So much more depth. Oh, that I may know him. Is that your passion? Is that your drive? Beloved, it should be for all of us. To know God 
and to know Christ. May that be our resolution for this year ahead of us. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, I would encourage you to think, just dwell upon for a few moments what you have seen in God's Word this morning, what you have heard regarding the greatness, the immensity, the vastness of our God. And the response from us to, or at least what should be the response, to want to know Him, to want to know Him deeper, more intimately, more profoundly, even as Paul expresses here in Philippians 3, that I may know Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you, have you come to the point in your Christian life where you've started coasting maybe? Where you think, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian. My eternal destiny is set. I know the Lord, so we're on cruise control now. Or is your life marked by what Paul expresses here in Philippians 3? A passion, a drive an urgency. I want to know God. I want to know Christ. I want to make that my life's ambition, my life's goal. I don't want to assume somehow I've got this all wired and I know him well enough. I want to know him. Ask the Lord to rekindle that passion if you've lost it. Ask him to renew that drive to know him to know Christ. And if you're here today without a relationship with God, without a relationship to Christ, remember what Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You don't have eternal life if you don't know God and you don't know Christ. But you can come to know him today. If you will humble yourself before him, if you will repent of your sin, if you will let go of whatever holds you back and just surrender yourself to God, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I want to know you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me your salvation. I want to know you. I want to come to know you personally. And then I want to grow to know you intimately. If you don't know Christ or if there's any doubt in your mind, I, I strongly urge you to pray that kind of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege that has been ours to just in a, a very brief time, a small way, probe what you are. What we even mean when we say God. What, what is God? To give our thoughts, to give our attention, to give our minds to this contemplation. Thank you for this privilege. We pray that our longing to know Christ deeper, more intimately, would parallel, would match what we've read here in Philippians 3. And we pray for anyone here among us who does not know you at all, Father, does not know you as Father, does not know your Son Jesus as Savior and Lord. We pray that your Spirit would draw that man or woman, young person, whoever it is, to come to know Christ, to come to know you, to have eternal life, and to begin a journey for the rest of life, getting to know you. This is our prayer together in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.